I just, I just think that at the end of my life, the money doesn't matter. It's more just the happiness. Did you enjoy what you did? That's the voice of Andrew Fisher, owner of Cold Brew Woodworking. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project to getting paid to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Andrew Fisher, owner of the Nashville, Tennessee-based furniture company, Cold Brew Woodworking. I talked with Andrew on his one-year anniversary of being a full-time furniture company owner. One year is a big deal. One year without a safety net. One year to really start to learn what works and what doesn't work for your business. A successful company is not built overnight. It takes time. And during that time, it's good to pause and take stock of where you are. Although it's only been a year, the respect Andrew has for how his company is managed runs deep. With pricing, with quality, and with his confidence in the business, he is dedicated to never selling himself short. Follow along as we talk about finding happiness in what you do, the importance of social media to your sales, respecting your brand, and much more. I was more like the trades kind of guy because what my stepfather was. My stepfather came into my life when I was two. So um, I grew up, you know, watching him wrench in the garage or fix boilers or, you know, make stuff with... I mean, he built the extension on the house, so I kind of got into that uh, with him. And then uh, I got recruited by my neighbor to work for an auto body company, starting out as a detailer when I was 17, fresh out of high school. And uh, I eventually made my way up in that business into, you know, doing all the Bondo and the quarter panel repairs and the welding. And um, I really got tired of breathing in all that uh, that Bondo dust and uh, stuff like that. So. Um, I actually did receive an inheritance from my grandfather when he passed away and I took that money and I actually went to Universal Technical Institute to learn about the motors and everything because auto body, you really, yeah, you get to mess with radiators and, and stuff like that. If it's involved in an accident, you know, you'd be able to uh, get a little exposure into the mechanic world through that. But as far as fixing motors and, and doing interior stuff and learning about the, how everything functions, uh, you really don't know that until you start digging into the mechanic side. So I decided to go to school, which at 24 is a, when you have $50,000 and you're 24 years old, you're like, wow, I could build a really fast car and be a show off. But I actually did the responsible thing and went to school, which is very surprising, especially me. So, um, I went to school and uh, I got straight out of school. I went straight to Toyota and in, in Middle Island, on Long Island. And um, I was there for about six years. I replaced Tacoma frames and uh, I, I did your typical mechanic stuff. And I made my way up to master diagnostic technician for Toyota, which is the highest ranking that you can have as a technician. And um, I eventually just got tired of how First of all, they treat their employees, and second of all, um, the the absolutely extreme hustle. And it's a dealership in New York, and if anyone knows anything about New York, it's go go go. There's no downtime. So um, that was a big reason why I moved to Nashville as well. But I eventually got tired of it, and I started to dabble in woodworking. I built my own uh, dining room table and benches in late 2017 for when I moved into my first house, April of 18. And that was my first like independent woodworking experience. And um, it was a farmhouse table. Um, I didn't know how to use basically anything I used. I didn't even use pocket screws. I didn't even know what a pocket screw was. 
I didn't know what a domino was. I didn't know anything that I know now. So I basically just kind of like screwed everything from the outside using these five inch long screws to go through the four by four uprights that were holding the aprons, which I didn't even know that was called an apron at the time. And then I did the crazy burning. I burned the living hell out of this table and I probably put about a good 10 coats of that three times polyurethane stuff, the, the thicker polyurethane. And the table came out amazing, uh, surprisingly, because it was construction grade lumber from Home Depot. Uh, it wasn't like some crazy kiln dried stuff that I went and got and it was perfectly flat. I mean, I basically ripped the edges off of it so it would be a nice butt glue up and that was it. I did it with a circular saw. It was like crazy. So. Um, and I know a lot of guys that work like that and it's, it's very, um, I'm very grateful for that experience because I know what it's like to work with minimal tools and not have exactly what you would need to have a business like this. So, uh, that table to come out that way was like a really big accomplishment for me. And I kind of stepped away from it for a little bit until I moved in. And then I was like, all right, I need a coffee table and you know, I'm not going to go buy stuff from Ikea. It's not happening. So uh, that's when I got my first cherry slab and I flattened it. I built my first router sled and um, flattened it. I started messing with epoxy for the tabletop and, uh, you know, I, I kind of got one of those pipe fitting bases and I made myself a coffee table. And uh, that's when I really started to kick off with this and I got my next slab and I made it for sale and uh, started to kind of take off. And my girlfriend at the time was like, you know, why don't you, why don't you do this part time? Uh, because you seem to enjoy it and it seems like uh, it seems like you're in a better mood when you come home from work and you kind of hang out for a little bit and then you go down into your basement where your shop is and do do whatever you got to do. So uh, that's basically how it started. It was around 2000, uh, May of 2019, I believe, I started to really pick up with the stuff and it was just general woodworking, cutting boards and stuff like that. It wasn't really anything crazy. Uh, but then like the epoxy stuff really started to kick off the end of that year. And I saw, I ever started seeing everything on Instagram and man, it's been a trip since <laughs> it's been an absolute trip. I can imagine it's a, it's a lot different than working at a car dealership. It's a, a different feeling when you're building things for yourself rather than working on something that's already been built by somebody else and i i know that feeling i also know the feeling of the go 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 culture of new york because i'm in that feeling all the time so i i completely understand what you're saying with that but that also is a drive it's a drive to make you want to push yourself whether it's a location feeling or it's a personal feeling that you want to push yourself or it's from an outside influence like a family member or a friend or maybe it's just a push from needing a new job or needing to get money but that push is something that makes people go into business for themselves which is what you did yep I, uh, I quit my job uh, exactly a year ago yesterday. Uh, well, actually, I think my first day full-time doing this was yesterday a year ago. So uh, 367 days ago, I quit my job. And um, I, you know, which, like I said, I was, tired of the, I was tired of the constant working on four cars at a time and, you know, not being appreciated. And uh, I just, you just get tired of the grind. And um, I wanted to do this full-time. So I, I had been dabbling and moving away from New York in the first place because of just how expensive it is. So uh, I knew that if I was going to be doing this full time, I was going to need to relocate because my customer base and everything, I hadn't had that yet. So I was trying to figure out exactly where I was going to go. So I ended up, uh, I ended up relocating and I moved to Nashville in July of last year. I have my shop here and, uh, it's a way different type of life down here. And, um, I don't regret it at all. I, I think it was time for me to go. I spent 31 years in New York and I think that was enough for me. <laughs> so it's too much sometimes, it's too much. I talk with a lot of people on this show and in the furniture business in general. And I know that 
a lot of people see four years as a benchmark for their business. And they like to take a look at where they're at in four years. And if they're successful by then, then that is their marker. But I really like to look at the one year mark as well, which is what you just came up on. And yes, you've been doing this part time since 2017, but really full time is a much different situation than doing it part time with the parachute of having another job, another paycheck. So the one year mark for me is a big deal. And I'm sure it's a big deal for you too. Yeah, I uh, I celebrated yesterday by taking the day off, <laughs> which which you know I really don't I really don't do much. Um, I, I'm I'm sure a lot of these guys can relate to this. That whether you're doing this full time or part time, telling yourself in the morning that you're going to take a day off never really happens because you always always can find something to do, and it's almost like an addiction being in here. It's almost like. This is your safe space, or this is your way to get away from life. It's a good place to escape. You know, it's 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 a lot of things for us, and I find myself doing that. But I, I will I can tell you that I did not walk in here once yesterday, and it was uh, it was a cool feeling. But uh, to your point, the one year mark was very important to me because first of all, leaving your job and leaving a place that you know so well, going to a place where you know absolutely no one except for the one person that I live with, which was my girlfriend, is scary. And you don't know what's going to happen. So in order to make this place work, I had to buy everything that I could possibly buy because I didn't have anyone to rely on. Like in New York, if I needed a tool that I didn't have, most likely my stepfather had it. And it was a 15 minute drive to him. And I could just say, hey, can I borrow this tool real quick? And I would go and pick it up, come back and do what I got to do. And then when I, next time I saw him, I'd drop it off. It was very, it was, it was very comfortable. Um, here, if I needed anything, I would have to go to the store and buy it and in order to uh, do what I was doing. So the only tools that I was bringing down with me, because I knew I, if I was going to be full production, I would need to have the tools required to do that. So uh, I sold my, you know, my job site, rigid table saw. I sold. I sold pretty much everything with intentions of upgrading. So it cost me about. I want to say all said and done with tools and everything that I needed in this garage that had a screw and fuse panel from the nineteen fifties, which wasn't going to work. No outlets at all. No heat. No air conditioning. No lights. I think all said and done, I was somewhere sitting around $30,000 as an investment to even start this. And um, I can, this is a rental property. So I'm actually renting from the guy, but the guy was like totally open to let me do whatever I wanted with the garage, which was basically a storage unit. So I emptied it out and I got everything set up and, you know, all said and done, like I said, I spent around $30,000 to start this. But uh, last year from the business after doing all of my numbers from last year, I actually broke even for the first year in business, which you never hear. And that was huge for me because all those doubts that I had the entire year, you know, I was getting orders and I was kind of like slumping some weeks and uh, I was just making stuff to order um, j just for inventory. And uh, as a maker, I think that's important too, to have stuff always available on top of doing custom stuff. But to break even the first year, I think was a huge accomplishment for me. And it was a huge ego boost uh, as far as a, a small business owner uh, to be able to accomplish that. Because like you said, it usually takes anywhere from two to maybe even five years to get to that point or to even create a profit. So um, I do have enough inventory right now as far as big tables and stuff that if I were to sell them at this moment, I would be in the profit already and I'm only a year in. So it, it's it's definitely, it's been a hell of a roller coaster, but man, let me tell you, it's, it's definitely a very, uh, a very satisfying thing to look at it and say, well, I broke even and I'm not, I'm not broke. <laughs> so it's very, very cool. I like it. It is satisfying not to be broke. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of people listening can shake their head. Yes. And agree with that. That is a, that is a good feeling. Yeah. 
you made a big commitment, not only monetarily, but also moving your location because you knew that if you were going to start a company, you could not start it in the place that you were based on the pricing that was there. And those are two really big commitments with only doing it part-time before. So a lot of people ask when the right time to start their businesses. And I want to ask you that. How did you know that that was the time? Because if you're looking at all the red flags, I'd say that was as many red flags as you could have, a full investment with tools and space and also a new place and not knowing the customer base there. That's a big question mark. That's a big unknown. But you jumped in. You felt like it was the right time. So let's walk through your mental process of that and how you switched over from doing this part-time for so long to going full-time, even though it was jumping into the unknown. So uh, that is definitely a big thing with a lot of people I see on Instagram. And I talk to a ton of people every single day. Um, and this is no exaggeration. I talk to a lot of people every day and a lot of different people. And they go through the same thing I was going through. They were, they're absolutely miserable at their jobs. They love what they're doing when they get home. And I think that's a big thing is, is happiness. Like I'll uh, just, just for an example, I was making uh, over $30 an hour as a technician for Toyota. And it wasn't an hourly wage. It was based on production. It's called flat rate. So the amount that you produce, let's just yeah, real quick, uh, an alternator would pay an hour in the book. And it would pay you that hour if you did it in 15 minutes or if you did it in six hours. So it all depended on how fast and efficient you were at work. So my normal, uh, my normal week when, especially when I was doing the frame recalls, um, I was producing somewhere around 80, um, 80 hours a week, but I was only working 40. So my paychecks were somewhere around, I know, you know, New York state likes to take their money. So it was somewhere around 1600 to maybe 1800, maybe even 2000 a week. All right. I do not make that now. So that is the biggest and scariest thing for somebody to give up that sense of security and safety. And especially if you have a family, um, for them to jump, jump into this. Now I have a dog and I don't have any kids and I'm not married and I was absolutely miserable at my job. So I knew it was the time for me to go because I had enough experience and enough exposure on Instagram. Uh, and I, and I had a good customer base to where I knew I could stay afloat, but not necessarily make what I was making. So I think once you get over that fear of the security or safety and you can actually do that without affecting someone else's life, I think that's the easiest way to, to jump into this. And uh, like I said, for me, if I had kids, maybe it'd be a different story. Maybe if I had uh, another house that I actually owned, it would be a different story. But ultimately, I think that happiness is really the thing that you're in search for your entire life. I don't think that it's a job. I don't think that it's a career. Um, if you're not happy at the end of your life, what, what was it about? Was it about the money you can't bring? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I don't want to get crazy philosophical with you, but I just, I just think that at the end of my life, the money doesn't matter. It's more just the happiness. Did you enjoy what you did? Did you inspire others? Are people going to remember your name when you leave? That's more the way I think. And um, that's, I think that's a way that a lot of people think. And I think it's the right way to think. And uh, that's basically what made me jump was I was miserable. And I was tired of being miserable. And I wanted to have a smile on my face and enjoy what I did. So I had enough experience with what I do now that I was like, I can make it work. And I did. And uh, yeah, luckily, it was a little bit of a success story for me so far. Um, I'm not going to jinx it, but I think that's what worked for me. And I think that it could work for other people in my situation as well. Maybe even someone that's married with kids. There's, there's a lot of different variables that go into this, but for me, it's 
did I enjoy what I did for my life? And did I, um, are people going to remember me when I'm gone? So that's kind of it for me. Happiness is important. I'm not going to push back on that at all. I'm not going to say you should do a job that's miserable for a paycheck. But we do live in a world where the reality is for a majority of the things that you want, the physical things that you want, you need money and you need to make money. And that's just the situation that we live in. And I'm sure you can agree that having some money also can lead to a little bit of happiness. It's not all of it, but having some money leads you to be able to continue to to do what you want to do. So let's talk about how you're making that money because you can jump into a full-time furniture business to be happy, but you need to make money. So you had a good runway learning how to sell product, price product, sell product when you were part-time. But then when you went in full-time, that became your full-time job. So how do you go about getting customers and how do you go about selling your pieces? I actually had this discussion on a live with uh, Ryan Feldhaus the other day and uh, we kind of went about the hobbyist pricing versus the full-time maker pricing. Now, when I when I first started out, I didn't really sell my prices for what they were worth either. Um, I didn't have a lot of confidence. So that's kind of like what, where a lot of people sit is the, uh, the, the confidence in that product and not thinking they can get what they think they, you know, they should. So once I started to realize that if you take yourself out of the negotiation range, I think that a lot of people start to understand that your product is quality. And if they get that piece and it's not quality, then you're sadly mistaken you know, of what you're doing. When I was part-time, I wasn't really concerned with the money because I had an income, like you were saying. So um, this was more just like extra money for me, spending money, cash, just, you know, buy buy things that I like and uh, stuff like that. You know, maybe some towards bills. But uh, when, I, when I went full-time, that was my biggest worry is being able to price my products to be able to sell and also keep myself afloat here. And you're absolutely right. You do need, you do need money. So happiness is a big part of it, but you know, you do need enough money to be able to live. And that, that was more what I should have kind of went into was I'd rather make less money and be able to live than make more money and be miserable. That, that was more my point. But, um, as far as my business is concerned, I have been a hundred percent Instagram since I started. Uh, I started my Instagram in 2019 in September and it's grown to about, I, I think I'm just about at the 40,000 mark. And again, it's not all about followers, but followers do tend to lead towards um, potential customers. So what I do for my marketing is every time I make a product, I take my final photos and I post them on Instagram. Um, I just started doing Facebook Marketplace, which is not really a place you want to be if you're doing this, because let me tell you, it is not, uh, you, you do not get the audience that you are setting out to get. Um, it's just like TikTok, you know, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of people that'll just ask a question and then ghost you. And, uh, I haven't, honestly, I haven't gotten one sale from Facebook yet. So, uh, for me, Instagram has been the number one and Etsy was a big part of it when I started, but I no longer have an Etsy because I have an actual official website now. So most of my stuff is driven through Instagram. I don't really go crazy with the uh, paying for the promotions. Sometimes I do for the bigger items because, you know, if they sell, then obviously I can work that into the profit. It's not a big deal. But, you know, for a $100, $100 small cutting board, you're not going to spend $50 in promotions to get that out there even though it may lead to maybe some more orders, but still, it, you know, financially, it doesn't make any sense to do that for that one item. So uh, as far as your question, it's been Instagram uh, 100%. Social media is a great way to get your name out there. There's no denying that. It used to just be business cards. People would say, do you have a business card? And then they'd call you. 
And then it mm-hmm. became websites where do you have a website? I'll take a look at that. And now it's moved on to social media in all its different forms, on all its different platforms. And, and a lot of businesses need to, not all businesses. There are a lot of businesses that are successful that don't have a social media presence, but there are also a lot of businesses that do have a social media presence and are successful just from that, just like yourself. Success on social media is obviously a hard thing to explain. It's a hard thing to bottle up and explain to people because there's a lot of different factors that go into it. Some, the content you put out, some just your personality and some things that are out of our control, like the almighty algorithm that everybody is so afraid of. But how have you found success on social media And more importantly, how have you taken that success and turned it into sales? So I think that a lot of people follow me for the, for a big reason. And that's just, I I am myself. I, I, I don't like to be the person that hides behind the product. I don't like to be that, you know, that, that people are always wondering, what does this guy look like? You know what I mean? Like, or, or who is this guy? I put myself out there. I don't have a personal page. I don't have anything other than this cold brew woodworking Instagram. So I tend to go a little into my personal life on there. And I think a lot of people can relate to the things that I go through. Um, One being the business. uh, Two, uh, sometimes I, you know, have my anxiety issues. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll take a couple days off and I'll just put a a story up there saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a couple mental health days so I can get my head straight. And, uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's because of, uh, social media that's causing it or maybe not, but either, either way, sometimes you just got to focus on yourself. So sometimes I'll just put a uh, thing out there and say, Hey, you know, I'm going to take a couple mental health days and get my head straight. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to be in the shop. I'm just not going to be active on Instagram. And a lot of people respond to that. And they understand that completely. So, you know, for a lot of people like me that do suffer with anxiety and stuff like that, um, it's very relatable. And I think just being myself has gotten me to where I am. And whether or not people buy stuff from me because I am myself, I'm not entirely sure. But um, what I try to do is I try not to be a... (sighs) how can I say this? A cold brew woodworking advertisement 100% of the time, Um, even though it is a business. And that sounds kind of silly. I don't like to be a business pusher full time. I also like to be the personality on there as well. So there's got to be a balance of, um, you know, what days I'm going to push my products and my stories or what days am I going to just, you know, be the jacks that everyone tends to watch on the stories like I am. You know what I mean? It's, it's There's a balance. So I'm not sure of what translates into a sale per se. I just think that being myself and posting my products enough to know that uh, for people to know that they're, they're actually available or they're available for pre-order or whatever else, um, it's kind of hard to judge. I just, it's just be yourself, I think, for me. I, I, it's kind of a hard question. <laughs> Putting your personality into your business is a big way to stand out, but people aren't only buying your product because of your personality. If you had an amazing personality, but you made terrible stuff, people wouldn't be buying your stuff. Yeah, they might be following you, but you might not be making those sales that you are. So, personality and standing out from the crowd is important, but quality is also very important. Absolutely. Um, I use the absolute best quality products and I, I, I totally miss that as well. But um, yes, I, I do use the best products that I possibly can. Uh, the epoxy that I use is called Super Clear Epoxy and the quality of their product never fails. Uh, it's not, it, it stays completely clear, it never yellows. Um, the lumber that I get is always sourced from someone that truly cares about the process of the milling, 
the uh, air drying process and then the kiln drying process. Uh, my buddy Sean over at Black Forest Sawmill, that's where I usually get all my big slabs from. And uh, it's it really is about the quality as well. So translating some of my past experiences like auto body have actually shaped what I am today. So, you know, as you know, with auto body, there's a lot of sanding involved and there's a lot of very uh, intricate steps in sanding and making sure that you don't leave these little pigtails when you're sanding. So a lot of things like that have translated into this business. So I'm kind of very appreciative for my experiences before this that I may not have enjoyed, but now I'm doing something that I enjoy and I'm also uh, very aware of how to do certain things. So uh, when someone sees my products and they receive them in person, I never have gotten a really bad review of it. I've always gotten a very positive review because I tend to really dial in on the quality of my products. And um, it's just, that I guess that goes with a little bit of ADHD and OCD, right? <laughs> well, it also goes with, using the past experiences in your life to influence what your business is today. And that can go for people who are doing any type of jobs or have any type of backstory. You can always pull out parts of your life that relate to what you're doing today. Even things that don't seem like they would relate, they make up who you are today and how you relate to your customers, how you position your business, how you grow your business. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your actual pricing. Let's get into that because the stuff you use is expensive. You use premium products. You use epoxy. You put a lot of time and effort and personal energy into these products and you need to be able to get not only the money that you put into it but a profit on it to continue to be successful so let's talk about a client comes to you with a custom piece what is that conversation start like and how do you price out the piece as that conversation develops so when a customer comes to me, let's just go with an example of an epoxy river dining table. That seems to be a very hip product right now. So um, when a customer comes to me and they are talking to me about an epoxy river table, I don't give them a price until I have a general idea of what they're looking for. So that would be dimensions and what type of wood would we like to use and uh, how much epoxy goes into this, um, how much you know, do you have a vision for it? So send me some pictures. So normally what I do is I'll have them kind of reference some pictures for me and kind of get an idea of what they're feeling. And then um, I'll go through what I have and maybe lay out a couple slabs. And let's just say it was a six foot by three foot dining table. I would make like a, a makeshift frame uh, out of just melamine or plywood or something like that. And I would kind of lay it out for the customer and give them a vision of it so that they can actually see what the table looks like before it's done. So I think that's a very big thing is is being being real with the customer and walking them through the entire process is ultimately what makes them want to work with you. As far as pricing is concerned, generally a three by six table would run with the epoxy river especially um and then the shipping uh i think somewhere in the range of four thousand is where i start for a table that size um given the prices of the kiln dried slabs that are not cheap epoxy is 250 dollars for every three gallons so let's just you know my biggest table to date is 18 gallons, I think I used in a, in a conference table. So that conference table sold was an eight by four. And I think it sold for about $9,000 and that was locally. I didn't have to ship it. So it just, it's basically don't price something that's not going to allow you to make a living off of it. So I, I it's weird. My, my formula is kind of weird. Um, I don't upcharge anything on the materials because I know some people actually do that, but I would more towards like 
what's going to make me my, my hourly rate that is going to be worth it. So I like to put that somewhere around 30 to 40, maybe even $50 an hour, because this is not just only a business. It's also, uh, it's also art and craft as well. So for a dining table, like I said, something around three by six would start at four grand, but it can go up to six grand or seven grand, depending on how much it is to ship and what we use. So uh, for something like a charcuterie board, you know, the Epoxy River charcuterie board, the, the, the staple of this whole thing with Instagram, um, I think a lot of people uh, tend to sell it so cheap that it's impossible to make money. And I can't do that because I'm full time. So my prices usually start for a 12 by 20 charcuterie board, which doesn't look very hard to make, but there's a lot that goes into it, as you know. Um, So that's why I tend to start somewhere around 200 bucks and above for something like that. Uh, Just price to where you can actually make money and then still enjoy what you're doing. And you have to find the right audience. I think if you take yourself out of the negotiation range, people are going to expect quality, like what I was saying before. So if you sell the product and you know it's quality, sell it for a quality price and someone's going to appreciate it. I think a lot of people that get these, uh, get these pieces from either me or other makers that make really quality pieces, they tend to almost brag about how much they spent on it. You know what I mean? So um, it it's, it's becomes a piece in their home and, and, it, and it's there for a very long time. So might as well make it quality because if it fails, then you got, you got some explaining to do and that's not fun at all. <laughs> Pricing is a difficult thing to talk about because there's a balance. Sometimes yeah. you price it too low and then it becomes a back and forth of, can I get this lower? And sometimes you price it too high and people are priced out of your pricing. And sometimes you price it high and people buy it because of that high price tag. And they think that that is associated with quality. And sometimes you price it too low and people buy it because it fits in their budget. And it's always a dance and there's no right answer across the board. It's the right answer for you for your location, for your customers, for what you sell, for what you want to get out of your daily rates, what you want to get out of your business at the end of the day. So pricing is confusing, is frustrating for people. You can find a pricing that works for you that might not work for somebody who is across the country or who's selling different things or who's still a furniture maker. But their needs are different. Yep. And I think um, I think a good point to make too is if the customer is out of the range, um, if, you're, if your product is out of their budget, uh, what I also like to do is give other, other options as well. Um, not, not to alter my quality at all, but to maybe make something that they would enjoy uh, that would cost less maybe not do an epoxy river table let's maybe make a a farmhouse table or you know something just just something else and um i always like to discuss other options with customers if they do have a problem with the pricing i think that being negotiable to a certain point is okay as long as you're still being able to keep yourself afloat and you don't make anyone question your quality so Let's just say I put up a table for $5,000 and someone on Marketplace messages me and says, hey, will you take $2,500? If you take $2,500, you either show one, you're absolutely desperate to get rid of it. Two, you're just trying to get your money back for materials and you're taking a loss. Or three, you're not fully, fully confident in your quality. And I think that's, I think those are things that people really need to think about and say, Okay, if I let this table go for this much, I make a bad impression because I'm letting it go for so cheap. And if people are going to find that out, especially other makers on Instagram, I mean, there's 
there's police out there and I'm kind of one of them. And I'll say, I'll go on someone's Etsy page and tell them, listen, I think that your, your product is way nicer than you think. And I think that you should probably raise your prices. I, one of my friends put up a piece on her stories. Uh, it was this awesome handmade sign scroll saw. And she was so mad because the customer that she made it for backed out on her and she was getting rid of it for $60. And there's no way that that could generate any profit. So I told her to take the story down, send me pictures, and I'm going to put it up for what I think it's worth. And I put it up on my stories for almost double that, and it sold in four minutes because someone sees the quality in the piece and they were like, wow, I have to have this piece in my house. And they bought it. And I think that's just, uh, for, for me, I, I just think that underselling and um, being totally negotiable like that is just a bad image. You're setting building blocks for your business with every piece that you sell, with every price that you put out there. And if you continue to make your building blocks quality and you continue to stick with that quality, then you're going to build a solid foundation for your company down the line. But if you take shortcuts, if you don't do things that are quality, if you sell things for well underpriced, then you're building a bad foundation for your company. And I know it's an easy thing to say in hindsight, as somebody who's done this, who's had the furniture company, who's built a brand, it's an easy thing to look back and say, don't sell your stuff for cheap because some people are in need of money. Let's be honest. Some people are not succeeding in their business and they need to build stuff and they need to get through that next paycheck. And I understand that. And I know you understand that. I know people listening understand that, but it's your business and you need to continue to build it in a positive way. And I'm not saying you can't take losses on something. I'm not saying there aren't certain times because there's always wiggle room when it comes to things, but you always need to be looking forward and you need to be thinking, how am I setting myself up for the future? Am I going to be known as the person who is cheap, who is easy to negotiate all the way down to rock bottom prices? Or am I going to be the person who sticks with their prices and maybe goes out of business, but at least I'll go out of business knowing that I stuck with what I needed and I didn't stay in business for years and years and years, not making any money, not being successful and just getting by. Because at that point, why not go work for somebody else? If you're in pain every single day and not making money working for yourself, then what's the point? Yep. I, I fully agree with that. I think that um, standing by your product, I think it's more of a, you know, I think it's more of a moral type of thing. Um, if you know that your pieces are quality, um, there is just going to be some times where you got to just know what's best for you. I can sit here and say, raise your prices, raise your prices to everybody. And sometimes it's not going to be what someone wants to do. And you can only look out for yourself when you're running a business that requires you to keep your head straight and keep your prices where they are. And it's uh, basically it, man. I, I just, um, I, I think it's more of a moral type of thing. I think if you have quality, you really should be selling it. I tend to give a small discount for bulk items. Um, I won't, I won't go crazy because uh, ultimately, if they order the same exact thing in multiple, I'll give them a little bit of a, of, of a deal because they are ordering multiple items that are going to multiple locations and people are going to see this item in different in different areas. So let's just say that someone orders four, four charcuterie boards from me the same exact way and they're all going to different states, to different family members. That's four places that people are going to see my product and, and you know, 
maybe someone's going to order something. So I kind of look at that as an opportunity for free marketing, but I won't go like, you know, giving them a 50% discount on it because that's just, what's the point? So if someone orders more than two boards from me, I'll more than likely give them maybe a 10% discount on the second one or something like that. It's usually, and it depends on if they're the same. If they're the same, then yes, because I am I have all my tools set up exactly the way that I'm going to do it for the first one. I'm just doing them with the second one. It doesn't require me to go and set up different things. So I think in that, that aspect, it's fine. But um, realistically, if you do go into Foot Locker and you want two pair of you know Air Jordans, they're not giving you 10% off for the second one, especially if they're the really special edition ones that cost $3,000 for a pair of shoes that are going to get destroyed the second you walk out of the house. Uh, other than, you know, a table that could be sitting in your dining room for years and years, maybe even generations. And that's the thing that I think people need to understand is that these are, these are pieces that are going to last. These aren't, these aren't your throwaway Ikea tables. These aren't your throwaway, um, you know, cutting boards that you buy from Target or Walmart. I mean, you see them all over the place, bamboo, $20 cutting boards that you pick up and they're all warped and cracked and, and the juice groove goes, <laughs> there was one, there was one board that I saw, I actually had it in my house. My landlord had it. It was a juice groove that went into the handle. So if the juice went in the, ha- in the juice groove and you move that board at all, it would make its way into the handle and onto your counter. So things like that, people got to understand is that you're paying for quality and you're paying for the knowledge and experience and um, you're you're ultimately getting the best product when you order from someone like me because I care about what's going into your home. I don't let something leave my shop if it's not up to my spec. So that's what you get when you pay for it. You clearly have confidence in yourself and confidence in your business and confidence in what you put out there. And that translates into the way you run your business. Now, there's a lot of people out there who also want to start a furniture business like you did. And maybe they've been doing this part-time for a while and they're looking to jump in, or maybe they're brand new to woodworking, but they just have that passion so deep inside of them that they want to start a furniture company for themselves. And there's people who have been doing this for a long time, longer than a year, longer than 10 years, but they don't feel like they're reaching the level of success that they think they should be achieving. So to those people, the people who are just starting out and the people who have been doing this for a while, what's some advice that you could share from your own experience to help them on their journey? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to say, all right, let's just go for examples. You said the the person that's just starting out. You definitely need to be able to fulfill an order that someone places with you. So if if you've been making only cutting boards and someone orders a humidor box from you and you don't know how to make a humidor box, that's going to be an issue. And you're going to basically be testing out your first humidor box on a piece that someone had, a, first of all, already paid for. And secondly, is expecting quality. For someone that's been doing this for two years or three years, uh, just like I've been, and is looking to jump ship from their uh, corporate job or uh, is just miserable with their job in general and they want to do this full time. I would say that knowing your customer base before you go into it is huge because I didn't have the customer base that I really wanted when I first started. I was, I had a good amount of orders that I knew that were starting when I was coming down here and have my shop set up finally. I had probably a good 10 to 15 orders waiting for my shop to open. So that was good to know. But if you're going to jump into this, I think that having orders ready for you to start working on when you get in to your full-time position is is absolutely huge. And for the 10 years, 
obviously their knowledge is most likely more than mine because just of just just because of the amount of time they've been doing it and um if they haven't been having the success maybe it's the social media aspect like you said social media is absolutely huge and some companies get away with not doing it because they were there before all this social media stuff all these carpenters and uh cabinet companies and all these guys that have been around since you know maybe the 90s or the 2000s where there wasn't instagram there wasn't facebook so they've been able to keep their customers coming in uh without it which is great which is which is the absolute way i wish i was i wish i didn't have to go on instagram every day and have a second job of social media but unfortunately this is where this is where all of my business has come from and i have to keep up with it so uh, i think the best piece of advice is just you know have a customer base ready for you when you jump ship because if you don't and you're going to you're going to lay out a lot of money to make products that are going to be for sale that may not sell for months. I made a Paduke table in August. Still hasn't sold, but I'm not going to go crazy with a negotiating price or a discount or anything like that uh, because I hold myself to a certain standard. Very wise words. And I hear what you're saying. And I think a lot of people listening also hear what you're saying and understand what you're saying and have taken a lot out of what you've shared today. So I just want to thank you for sitting down with me today and for sharing your story and for being open about your journey and about where you came from and where you're going. Thank you very much for your time and best of luck in the future as you go from year one to as far as you want to take this. I appreciate you for having me on and uh, keep killing it on your page. I, I'm, it was fun to sit on here and talk with you and maybe we'll do it again someday. Maybe my five year. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.